Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, friends, this is the 16th sermon in our sermon series on the letter of James. And this evening's study is James chapter 5, verses 7 through 16. Now, we've seen how James, the spiritual surgeon, has examined the issues among the wealthy and the poorer members of these scattered Jewish believers in congregation. He has explored the sin of partiality, one that's grown into jealousy and rivalry, and how some Jewish believers have allowed jealousy and rivalry to grow into covetousness and quarreling that threatens their fellowship. Because at its heart, James identifies a spiritual adultery. Indeed, he's so deeply concerned for their Christian lives that he shakes them, bringing, as it were, a covenant lawsuit against them evoking the pattern of the Old Testament prophet. He reveals how the wealthy of the congregation are to undergo God's severest discipline, indeed, even God's judgment, if they have the appearance of a profession of faith in Christ, but not the reality. He also comforts the oppressed, the poor among them, that God is aware of their cries. And so James continues in our verses this evening along that same pastoral vein. He has sent down his strongest rebuke to those who were in sin. And now he calls the faithful to persevere. We can well imagine, can't we, how shaken the more delicate conscience would be of these congregations as they heard James's rebuke, both of the oppressed of tender conscience, and those wealthy members who, by their conscience being pricked, have come to repentance. Therefore, James changes his tone. He is once again the loving pastor. He calls them his brothers and sisters. He repeats it another three times in the section we study this evening. His great loving concern is to bring these believers to maturity and now how they have responded and will respond to God's continued testing. He writes to them with this principle, Christian believers need long-term patience. Long-term patience. Indeed, he uses the term patience three times in this little section in verse 7 and 10, and we find the synonym in verse 11, steadfastness, patience and steadfastness. Have you noticed how James also quite cleverly underlines its antithesis, the antithesis to patience, to steadfastness? In other words, the short temper, the short fuse, 
That's the direct opposite mark of spiritual maturity. Some of us may even brag that, can't we? I've got a short fuse. I tell it like it is, straight between the eyes. Well, James has a word for us this evening. He also reveals how two things happen to the Christian believer who develops long-term patience. The first is he or she develops a poise, a stability, while living in what is a very unstable world. The second is that the threats to such stability will be handled effectively and well by the believer who understands and practices long-term patience. We could summarize really here that what James wants us to understand is how patience and steadfastness are, as it were, a summary of our entire Christian life. Let's look at that now. The nature of the Christian life in this summary. It's in verses 7 through 9. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now notice how James uses the farmer as his illustration of patience. That's his example. Now, if you have a King James Bible, or if you're familiar with it, if you're a particular vintage like me, you may recall that there James uses the older, and I would suggest a more fitting term, husbandman. It's where our term husband comes from. I say this because husbandman has the sense of nurturing, of cultivating, of tending and caring for the crop with the purpose of feeding and sustaining his household. There's more here in the sense of stewardship and service rather than mastery or lordship. And that is extremely fitting. We can see why James indeed picked this illustration. Because every farmer, husbandman, indeed every gardener knows that we serve and care for the flora of God's creation. By what? By making the best conditions for their flourishing. But we are never, ever their master. Now we may neglect our stewardship and plants will fail. Or the foolish husbandmen will be impatient. Their impatience And in a real sense, their laziness is to force a plant, to bend it to their will, and so creating conditions that cause a plant to diminish, indeed, even to die. So as servants, as stewards, we must have 
long-term patience. So how does the Christian husbandman apply the scripture to his garden plot? What's all that about? Well, we see it here too. We speak of the early and the late rains. We studied this in our series on Genesis 1 through 11. You see, he or she depends on God's promise that he will give both seed time, early rain, and harvest, late rain. And we are to trust the providence of God, that he cannot by nature change or hasten. This pattern will continue to the end of the age. Therefore, the Christian husbandman learns to submit to the providence of God. You have patience in terms of trust in his sure promise that the pattern will continue, and we submit humbly to it. You see, the sense of the original word used in the Greek here that translates patience conveys the idea of a long period of time before any sense of frustration begins to simmer. So the believer is to wait upon the Lord, to submit in how God is working in his or her life. He or she trusts God's word here, so that God's perfect wisdom is at work to bring them to full maturity. So this illustration brings us together as spiritual farmers when we consider the integrity and health of our own souls flourishing before the Lord. We are spiritual husbandmen and women working in spiritual gardens. So we must grasp our need for patience. We must grasp how we must depend on God's sovereignty over us and of all the aspects of our lives, trusting that he keeps his promise and his schedule. He will establish your hearts as a consequence. Hence, James' next command, establish your hearts. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand, verse 8. In other words, Christ's return is the next major cosmic event on God's calendar. Well, why is this, the coming of the Lord, so important in developing patience? and to be stabilized in the promise. It's simply this. It's only when he does appear that I will fully understand, I will make sense of my entire life in all its detail. Now I know we all have questions concerning how our lives have gone. The why questions. We've only seen the weave from underneath the tangle of thread one, then another, and another. It seems to us such a chaotic jumble. But then, at the coming of the Lord, we'll see it from above. The tapestry of our lives will be revealed to us, and it will all fall into place. Therefore, we're patient, because we are in darkness at the present time, but we know that the day to unveil the tapestry of my life is certain and is coming soon. 
you, my dear friend, will have all your questions answered. Now, James has a second command here in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What's he saying? Well, he's saying here that we no longer grumble against one another because we live our lives in the light of Christ's victory. I stand at the door and knock. Here's a question. Why does the fact of the Lord Jesus standing at the door stop me from grumbling? Well, think of it like this. I think we all, at one time or another, had the experience of the stopped conversation. I liken it to the Wild West Saloon, you know, the noise of the crowd and the and the tinkling of the piano going on, and then the person arrives at the swinging doors, and everything stops. You know, you're in a gathering, you approach a group of people who are talking, but when they catch you in the eye, make that eye contact, what happens? The conversation stops. There's that awkward pause, and you know, you know, don't you? They are hiding the fact that they were talking about you. Now, here's the thing. Would they have done it if they knew for certain who is standing at the door just in the threshold? The shadow falling on the floor in front of him? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes, as the Te Deum says in morning prayer, He comes to be our judge. So do you see James's point? Jesus Christ is at the threshold. Therefore, a Christian believer lives your life in that reality, in his presence. So I synchronize my life with the Lord Jesus. And when I synchronize my life, when I ground it in the realization that he is at the door, our lives begin to be transformed. My speech, my patience, my attitude toward that, well, let's call them the angular believer with the sharp edges, are all changed. Prayer changes. Because I'm speaking to the Lord and he's at the door. It's as if he's just about to enter the room. I can carry on a relationship with someone on another level, all through my life of prayer. And in praying for them, I change too. That's the sum of the Christian believer's life, according to James, in these verses. And just to confirm it pastorally, To these believers, he gives examples of this principle. Look at verses 10 through 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
Now notice how James gives two examples. The first is the example of the Old Testament prophets as a whole. Now why would he use the prophets? Because they are the best example. Because they are exactly like you and me. Like us, they followed God's command. Like us, they made every effort to be faithful. And like us, they suffered because of it. Here's the thing. They did not know what God was doing. The New Testament confirms how the prophets would examine their own writings to figure out what is going on. What is God's doing? We know this, too, from our own reading of the prophets, don't we? You always will find a section of lament, of mourning, of grief. When they cry out to God, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to our nation, to our people, to those who have been faithful, alongside those who have practiced spiritual adultery? But they were, James writes here, what? Steadfast. Steadfast. It's an important difference. You see, because this word has a different semantic range in the Greek to the word patience that we've been looking at so far. Here, it evokes more the image of an athlete. So consider for a moment the top-class Olympic weightlifter who snatches and pushes a great weight above his or her head to hold it there, straining with every muscle until time is called. Stance set, exertion revealed in their faces, focused concentration to carry that burden. They have this fixed concentration, the stickability under such a heavy weight. That's the Christian believer. Under the heavy load of, of testing and trial while we bear it. We're straining under the burden. We may cry out in grief and lament like Old Testament prophets. Standing minute by minute, day by day, steadfast. Now, James's second example is Job. Maybe you've heard the old saying, she has the patience of Job. But James uses steadfastness of Job. Job is steadfast. It's a bit more accurate when you compare what actually is written by Job or about Job. First, in chapter 3, what does he do? He curses the day he was born in a long, gut-wrenching lament. He berates his friends as windbags. He wrestles with God at length. Why, God? Why? He's under this huge weight of suffering. Yet he continues steadfast. How? I know that my Redeemer lives. 
And when God reveals himself to Job, he humbly repents in dust and ashes. Now, what's the point James trying to make for us here? He's trying to say, look, believer, you can see what Job didn't see. Because you can see that in the prologue of his book, the purpose of the Lord, before the curtain goes up, that God was working to bring Job to a glorious transformation. Therefore, James is saying, God has given you Job's story so that you might learn and be certain of this, that God has the same glorious purpose in your life. He is compassionate and merciful. So there's a simple last question then. Why do we have verse 12? But above all my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What's going on there? Lord, do you remember how his letter began? Here he's been focusing on long-term patience, on steadfastness, on focus on Christ, on all of these things. He's at the threshold, all these singular things. And he returns to his condemnation and warning of double-mindedness. A double-minded person is what? Unstable in all his or her ways. No patience, no steadfastness, none. Therefore, James reminds us that this double-mindedness must go. You must be unreservedly Christ's. Now, here's the amazing thing, my friends. When we do indeed commit to being unreservedly Christ's, you realize a great truth that you cannot live like Christ unless you are unreservedly Christ. Like Peter, when he saw a glimpse of the glory of God as our Savior spoke with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, a foretaste of his ascension and glory, what does he say? Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What does Luke say next? That Peter did not know what he said. The Lord Jesus said to Peter and to us, Peter, you don't know what you're saying. You've only glimpsed. But later, you will know the glory fully. All your questions answered. All your life transformed. And now you will know fully. But for now, patience. 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 Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. 
There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.